Hold welcome. Thanks for joining me again this week. It's David, co-founder of Ag Economic Insights. And this is the weekly uncertainties recording. Of course, there's a YouTube video and a podcast version of this. We also include the transcripts. So thank you for joining us. Going to talk this week about a couple articles we've written, but also another idea. So I have three things to share. It's um, risk. It's uh, the change in corn and soybean stocks, and also the social desirability bias. So to kick this off, I'm going to walk through a little bit what we've seen here with respect to the ending stock situation. And so we create these called waterfall charts. And the idea is on the left side, we begin with um, where corn stocks were estimated back in May. And then I show on the extreme right where they are as of October. And in the middle, we talk about the sources of change. And why this is really important is because um, every month there's a WASDE report and there's speculation and in the final number. And there's, you know, four, five, six, seven specific categories that can move. And so every month there's a movement, but then how do you sort of keep track of all those kind of categorical changes? And it's hard, at least for, for me, and I think it's hard for a lot of folks to keep track of all these factors moving over many months of, of estimates. And so the first one we took a look at is corn stocks. And you know, corn ending stocks, the USDA projected them back in May at about 1.507 billion bushels, and now they're at 1.500 billion bushels. So very little change here. But when we break down some individual components, we see that actually there's been some offsetting going on. And what does that mean? Well, first off, today compared to May, we've actually seen more uh, acreage. And so that equivalented to about 280 million bushels of additional corn. And then, of course, the yields have come down. Right now, corn yields are below trend. That's pulled 257 million bushels out of the projection. And then there's been a little bit of an increase in the stock projections from less feed uh, and residual estimated. There's also an adjustment because exports have been fairly strong. So on the whole, the outlook is unchanged, but we do have some offsetting production uh, situations. The other chart uh, is perhaps more more valuable, and I encourage you to read the whole article. But the other chart is the soybean stock situation, and Brent had reminded us many times that we had to be careful when we're in tight stock situations because small changes can have a really big relative impact. So, for example, a um, hundred million additional bushels of ending stock of soybeans is way more significant when there's the starting point's 140 versus 400 or 500. So 100 million additional bushels can seem like it's almost doubling in a tight stock situation, but it can only be like a, a 10 or 15% change if we're at the, you know, a higher stock situation. So the relative movements can feel a little bit different. Now, what we've seen in soybeans is a big stock change. Back in May for the 2021-22 marketing year, the May estimate of soybean stocks was 140 million bushels. Today, it's at 320. So it's more than doubled. And when we look at those components, we see a little uh, less soybean acres than initially projected. Above trend yield has added about 61 million bushels. And then we got to get to this big one. It's about 75% of all the increase. It's the beginning stock situation. So when we look at sort of the production, the production numbers, the demand numbers, they haven't 
uh, push stocks up nearly as much as the beginning stocks. And the beginning stocks tell us, well, actually, it's the carry-in, uh, the carry-over. And we didn't get as close to the bottom of the barrel for the last marketing year, the one that just closed as we initially thought. Of course, um, those stocks initially were projected to get pretty low, close to 3% stocks used. Now they're closer to 4 or 5 We've talked about that in earlier videos. And the biggest impact in this bearish development in soybeans are these stocks. When we look at the usage, crushing is, is a little lower than initially projected. Exports are a little bit higher. And in general, again, the big takeaway here is it's the stock situation that's really changed the dynamics of this. Another point I want to point out here is we've seen stocks increase about 180 million bushels. And what's the impact of a one bushel change in the old projections? And so that's about 86 million bushels. So 86 million bushels for every one bushel per acre change in the national yield. And we've increased in on whole about 180 million bushels. So when I was preparing this, I guess um, one of my takeaways here is that it's going to be a little bit more difficult to get to a tight stock situation if we anticipate the USDA to pull these soybean yields down a little bit. So I guess my takeaway, and you know, I encourage you to form your own opinion and get your own takeaways here, but mine is you know, maybe this narrative of, oh, USDA is going to tighten the stocks and we'll get back to a tight situation here. Uh, lower the yield to tighten the stocks was maybe not as... Um, strong as I had initially thought. We saw something very uh, similar. This chart was very helpful for our thinking last year when we went from very um, excessive stocks to very tight stocks, especially in corn. Of course, last May, the USDA projected a 20% stock to use ratio for corn, and it worked its way down to you know an 8 or 9% stock to use at the end. And we had to unpack how did all that come to be? Was it a supply situation or a demand situation or both? We think this is a very important chart. We'll update these once we get some more final numbers here after the November and December WASD. But wanted to share this to help you think about, you know, how we've changed and what the sources of, of those changes are. What had been the levers of that development? The second article is another what we are thinking about memo. Um, as you probably know, all publicly traded companies in their annual report have to file a risk factors section. It's one of the first sections in that annual report. They tend to be big. I was looking at um, John Deere and a few other companies' uh, risk factors. They are sometimes 10 to 15 pages. In fact, I believe there's a 15-page um, kind of maximum. If you get over 15 pages, you have to file it as, as, as kind of a separate document and just include a short summary. Um, and the point of this is pretty straightforward, these 10K filings. They want the investors of, of these companies to know a little bit more about the risks. But of course, it's a good intention. But when you add lawyers and consultants, it can quickly become this text or these pages of text where you're trying to say as much as possible and to cover all your bases, but yet not concern anybody. So you want to say a lot, but not get to any, any specifics. Um, some people say economists might talk that way, right? Cover all of our bases, but never really get to the, the meat of the, 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 the situation. So we recently heard um, Jeff Emmelt, uh, the former CEO of General Electric, kind of lament this process. And he said, you know, if the CEO, the leader of the business really wants to do a, a good job, they need to sit down, identify three risks facing the business and write about them, right? It doesn't matter how much you write a paragraph, a page, and discuss uh, what your thoughts are, 
describe the risks and maybe some strategies to approach that. As a really important um, idea that we can carry, this is a really important mental model. And we encourage you all listening, whether you're a producer or an agribusiness um, professional, think about what are the risks facing your business or your responsibilities in the business. Narrow those down to three. That's step one. Much easier to make kind of a laundry list of risks that can kind of be um, a whole lot of ideas. But the point of narrowing it down to three can, can force us to into some discipline. The second part is writing this out. It can be really hard to write uh, about these, but we encourage you to write these out. And then three, the third step here is distribute these, share these with your, your business colleagues, your stakeholders, have conversations. And you never know how these three risks, we call it the three risk exercise, how this exercise will pay dividends, but it will pay dividends, right? It's going to sharpen your thinking. It's going to give you uh, this clarity about what the risks are and help sharpen your communication about that. But then in the distribution and sharing, it could very easily prompt conversations with others around you. Maybe they share those concerns, but they think about it a little bit different. Maybe they have data to help you think about it a little bit different. Or maybe they have other risks and they come to you and say, hey, I think you overlooked this. It isn't a debate as to who's right or wrong, but it's an opportunity to hear and be heard as you think about that. I'll tell you up front, this is an exercise that is very hard. Very few of us are going to do it. Um, and, and why is because it's, it's going to trigger that level two thinking. Level one thinking is just sort of sitting around the coffee shop table talking about the risks. It's like, oh, it's agriculture is risky. Farming is risky. Um, lending money is risky. Selling inputs is risky. But it's actually really hard to frame up why you have risk and why these risks are relevant. So Brent and I have started this exercise and it's uh, something we call the three risks. And so we were about three uh, strategic risks that we believe are three um, big picture uh, systematic risks that we think are important to the farm economy in 2022. If you disagree with us, use us as a starting point. Um, if you disagree with us, send us an email. Let's talk about it. Um, and, and use this as a starting point for your own personal exercises. One thing I want to point out before I talk about the three risks is that these are systemic. They're across sort of all farms and agribusinesses. Your specific operation is probably going to have more risk that are idiosyncratic or firm specific. And so those could easily be more consequential than the things that we're talking about here. So we hope this is a starting point. It primes your thinking for you to do this for your own business. So one, macroeconomics. There's a lot of talk about inflation. And as we were writing this, we kind of had all these macroeconomic factors, inflation, supply chains, uh, global economies, what's going on with China's debt markets and their uh, housing, real estate markets. And so we thought like these are all interconnected. They're woven together. And one of the reasons why we believe this is so important is that the farm economy is strong on its own, but it's also strong in the backdrop of a really robust macroeconomic climate. Congress and the Federal Reserve have been um, very accommodating. There's been a lot of stimulus out there, and that has had an impact on agriculture. And if we see a scenario develop where the macroeconomic outlook is less optimistic, there's maybe less uh, stimulus, 
Uh, maybe this low interest rate environment becomes less uh, expected into the future. This could start to have a big impact. So this is an issue in our minds is because it's currently the outlook is very, very favorable. And uh, stepping away from that could have um, potential consequences. Step number two is what we've labeled excessive exuberance. And I think when we think about this profitability, there's sort of two ways that um, producers or those in agriculture might perceive how they navigate 2022 and 2023. Of course, one strategy is, uh, wow, we, we just went through this margin squeeze. We went through the trade war, we went through the pandemic. I really want to uh, buttress up my operation. I want to create some reserves. I made it by the, made it through, and I never want to go back to that situation again. Sort of this never again strategy. Um, other producers might adopt, uh, other business leaders might adopt a "what doesn't kill us makes us stronger." We survived all these things, and you know, I want to make sure I jump on these opportunities. And if I'm not aggressive enough now, I might not be able to buy this farm, or I might not be able to grow. And sort of not being aggressive enough could be a barrier to success. And I think we have to keep this in mind when we think about sort of the inflationary concerns, the farmland values. So we talked a little bit about that. And of course, the third point we included here is demand destruction. There's never a good time for demand to be um, reducing, but we have to step back and recognize we've had pretty strong demand and demand is a function of quantity of goods consumed at a price and demand is much stronger than it was during the trade war. I think there are demand concerns out there. The end of the phase one trade agreement, what happens with China is China continue to buy a lot from us. What happens if we have, for example, an outbreak of something like the African swine fever? And the idea here is those are always risks. But when we're in an environment like we are today, where the economic signals are to expand and global expansion is overweight, we have a rising cost structure. This demand structure destruction um, could, could cause some pretty significant implications if it were to play out in 2022 in light of the expansion and high cost structure as we're heading into them. So I gave you the sort of the three minute overview, encourage you to go in there, read about the three risk exercise, why we think it's important, and then use the three that we've identified for agriculture in 2022 to help you jumpstart your thinking for your own firm or farm specific risk. And again, I encourage you to write these down, share them with your colleagues, share them with your stakeholders, share them with your business partners to learn from each other. Finally, I want to talk about social desirability bias. And uh, what, what that is, it's an idea that makes it better. We haven't wrote an article about this, but I want to share it uh, real quick with you all. I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit. And the idea is that we might underrepresent bad behaviors that we exhibit and we might over exhibit uh, some good behaviors, some behaviors that society deems as good as to what's going on. So, you know, one of the classic examples is, oh, I don't believe I'm going to overeat over the holiday weekends, but, you know, I think my neighbors will, my neighbors are much more likely to overeat than, than maybe I am, or maybe, you know, this is kind of also maybe the above average effect, like I'm better than average at showing up at a meeting on time or getting my work done in a timely and promptly way. So the social desirability bias is this disconnect between what you're reporting, your behavior is, and how um, society might deem those um, behaviors. And why I'm thinking about this is the acreage debate. We've been seeing a lot of acreage surveys about producers 
anticipating less corn in 2022, more soybeans in 2022. And the narrative around that is, you know, the fertilizer cost is really going to make corn less attractive and tips the scale towards soybeans. We've wrote about that. Um, we think it's a little more nuanced, especially in the budgets and the price ratios, but we've talked about that before and you can go read more about that. The other thing that's interesting is that there's a lot of optimism building about corn is, you know, we have less acres, the balance sheets are going to get really tight for corn potentially. Um, so I've been beginning to start to wonder if there's a bit of a social desirability bias where if you ask producers, you know, what's the probability of your neighbors increasing corn acres next year? Uh, you know, what's that number going to be? And then the follow-up question is, what's the probability of you increasing corn acres next year? And we've heard rumblings and sort of this idea of like, man, you know, I might plant more corn because I'm optimistic that, you know, prices of corn are going to go up because of this tight acreage situation. The budgets look really good on my farm, but I think this high cost structure is going to keep everybody else from planting corn. So uh, kind of an idea to think about. And I think you can maybe take this, apply it to yourself, talk to others. Um, but, you know, these two questions, what's the probability of individual farmer A planting less corn acres on his operation? And what does farmer A think the probability of uh, his neighbors playing less corn acres in 2022 is I think there's a little bit of a difference there. I think there's a little bit of a social desirability bias where everyone kind of wants less corn acres to happen. And so we think our neighbors are going to do it, but we might not play that out individually on our operation. So again, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you've enjoyed our recent comments and content. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. And one last thing that I'll mention that we're really excited about here is for those of you who've enjoyed Escaping 1980, we are going to be releasing a, a second season to that uh, series. So season one is Escaping 1980. Season two is going to be called Corn Saves America. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in upcoming posts, but you can expect that to be coming out in November. Of course, Brent, myself, and Sarah Mock have been working on this. And Sarah brought in a whole bunch of experts to help us navigate. And again, it's not the 1980s farm financial crisis, uh, but we're trying to think of critically about uh, other issues and provide some lessons. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be, again, season two, um, a follow-up on the from the AEI Presents Escaping 1980 in season one. If you've already subscribed to the podcast, you'll be getting those coming very soon. Again, thanks for joining me. In the meantime, stay curious. Stay curious.